Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. So I think Jesus' first disciples, they learned pretty quickly that following Jesus, this is really uncomfortable, they learned pretty quickly that following Jesus meant following Jesus into confrontation. Anyone love confrontations here? There are some people who love confrontations. I'm going to stay away from you. Now I know, just stay away. Um, Tim Keller uh, once wrote, he said this, It is impossible to encounter the real Jesus and be indifferent. You either bow down and wonder or you go away offended. That's the reality. And we're about to enter a section in Mark's gospel, which goes from Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to Mark chapter 3, verse 6, where Jesus enters the arena of confrontation, conflict, accusation. It's going to be fun, right? Who's following Jesus here? So we're going to follow him into... Anyway, there we go. What's really interesting, there are five confrontations in this section, five, which is a significant number, we won't go into it. There are five confrontations, and, and they kind of build up to uh, Mark 3, verse 6, which actually says this, At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Imagine that. It only takes three chapters and six verses <laughs> for a plot to develop, not to silence Jesus, not to subdue Jesus, not even to discredit Jesus. No, it actually takes three chapters and six verses for a plot to come to the surface where people are literally, absolutely, determinedly wanting to kill Jesus. Is that insane? Who's following Jesus now? Because he leads us into places, doesn't he? He does lead us into places. Um, and chapter 1, I mean, it's very different. Chapter 1 was kind of like, you had all these highs. We're going to go into these places where there's still some highs, but there is some real tension that's going to build up. And in these tension moments, Jesus is still showing us what the kingdom of God is, what it looks like. He's actually going to remind um, Israel, God's people, Christians, us, of what it means to be God's people as he goes through these confrontations, but he's going to use them. But chapter 1 was kind of punctuated with all of these highs. There were some great moments. Do you remember some great moments? I remember the, the, the highlight of the moments, like verse 15, where, where he comes and he announced, he says, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. That was great, isn't it? Isn't it good to know sometimes that even if you feel like all oh, hell is breaking loose, the kingdom of God is actually literally within grasp. It is actually that close. It is insane. Um, last Friday, I had the privilege of doing a funeral um, for we've got a great relationship with an Aboriginal family. And um, so it was a sad funeral. He was only 46. Um, but you, you, you know, um, it was one of those days, it was on Friday, and the place was, this place was chockers with the Aboriginal community. And, um, and uh, it, it, was, it was insane. We had people like, coming from prison and all that. So it was one of those um, interesting times at New Spring Church. And um, it, it was an interesting time. And um, it was really interesting to me um, because obviously I get to um, lead and, and facilitate, do the funeral. Uh, one thing I absolutely do, I do love doing funerals. Um, like everyone, I don't find death comfortable, but I know that part of my role is to lead people in all stages of life, and one of the most important stages of leading people is in this stage of death. Um, so that's a really important thing. Um, so we're over here, and there was such a beautiful presence of God. That's the reason why I love doing funerals, 
Because if nothing else, I know I will bring the presence of God. So for an hour, an hour and a bit, I don't care where you come from. I didn't know where they came from. Didn't know, I know some of them. But they had to sit in the presence of the Lord. And they had to hear about the Lord. That's what I love about doing funerals. It reminded me once again, I'm after it and I'm talking to people and they're talking to me about God. It astounds me that it doesn't matter where people come from and a lot of times people are even scared to even venture into this auditorium. But it staggers me and it reminds me that people are so close to the kingdom of God, especially in moments like facilitating and leading funerals. And sometimes in our life, you may be here right now, and it may be just that reminder, even now, that God's kingdom is close. It's within grasp. It is near. And remember, we were talking about that word repent, which has a lot of baggage. In the first century Israel, that word repent meant to change your thinking, to change your mind. So we may have walked into this place and it feels like all hell is breaking loose. And God, where are you? And if scripture says the kingdom of God is near, that means that we need to rethink some things. And maybe right now there needs to be a recalibration in your heart and in your soul. And you may feel that God is distant and you need to rethink and you actually need to tell your mind, you say, wait a minute, he's not distant, he's actually within grasp. And the presence of God will come like that. Anyway, that's not part of the message. Um, The kingdom of God is near. Then Mark invites us to observe and to listen to Jesus to see what what this kingdom looks like. Um, breaking in and breaking forth. You notice that Mark doesn't actually give a descriptive. The kingdom of God definition. He doesn't. He doesn't do that. What he does, he invites you to look and observe the life of Jesus. And everything we hear from Jesus, everything we see Jesus do, is the kingdom of God breaking in and breaking forth in the world right now. And what is undeniable is the response that people have um, because they observe something. Even if we weren't there, we've got these eyewitnesses who are observing something. So a couple of verses, verse 22 says, The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Verse 27, amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this? They asked excitedly. It has such authority even the spirits obey his orders chapter one tells us that the news of jesus it is spreading it is going like rapid fire all over and he seems to be so generous with his healing he seems to be so generous in casting out demons it's almost as if when jesus enters a region he banishes illness he banishes the demonic just by his mere presence being in there and people are observing this and people are seeing this authority and they're asking this question what in the world is this we have never seen this before everything that he does is on his own terms he's walking with such confidence and the implied question which is asked and it comes up later on in chapter 3 but the implied question is Jesus this 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 authority this power is undeniable what are the origins of it that's the implied question what are the origins of it and again Jesus on his own terms you know, there are moments where the demons want to start talking and say, you're, the son, you're Jesus, son of God, and Jesus says, be quiet, and shuts them up. So he won't let the demons reveal who he is because he's doing everything on his own terms. But we come to this story where out of his own mouth, he starts declaring and revealing who he is. Everything Jesus does is on his own terms. And when he starts speaking and he starts saying who he is, controversy starts. And the conflict starts only when he starts speaking for himself. So we're going to read this thing. But before we do it, I just want to um, 
have two scriptures. We could use a multitude of scriptures, but just two scriptures for you to lodge in your memory before we do that. One from Isaiah 43, verse 25, which says, I, yes, I alone, this is Yahweh speaking, by the way, this is God. I will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. Gee, that's a good scripture, isn't it? That's a great one. might remember that. Isaiah 44, verse 22. I have swept away your sins like a cloud. Whoa. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Anyone need to hear that this morning? That's good to know, isn't it? It's great. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Two scriptures in Isaiah. If you remember, we started off this whole thing. We we're talking about this timetable, which we're doing in our Bible course. Those scriptures fit in this moment of exile, which is an important period for us. And I want us to keep those scriptures in mind. This is Yahweh speaking. This is Yahweh, this is God saying, this is what I will do. And keeping that in mind, let us now read Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. We're going to read from verse 1. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door while he was preaching God's word to them. Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law were sitting there. They thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your heart? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to, stand, or to say, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Wow. That's a remarkable story, isn't it? It's remarkable for quite a few reasons. Two reasons would be it is remarkable in that Jesus speaks of his identity. You'll remember that up until this point, John Mark, who's the writer of Mark's gospel, he is the one declaring who he believes Jesus to be. The very first sentence, he's actually making a declaration from Scripture who he believes Jesus to be. This is the time where we actually hear from Jesus' own lips who he is revealing about himself. Now, you may come across some people and they may give you all sorts of arguments about the divinity of Christ. One key question is to actually ask and keep in mind, well, who did Jesus believe he was? Okay? Who did Jesus believe he was? And we get the answer right here. Who does Jesus believe he was? Because out of his own lips, he starts doing it. The second thing which is quite remarkable about this is because Jesus comes and he starts addressing the real need in humanity. Guy's obvious, he needs healing. But Jesus offers forgiveness. How do the Beatitudes start? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. 
There is something about coming before God in honesty and just being humble and just being straightforward and actually saying, God, I'm stuffed. I'm broken. I am in deep poverty. And I need something which I do not have in and of myself, so I come before you. Those people receive the kingdom of God. Those people. In fact, that's what makes us followers of Jesus. That's what makes us Christians. We are no better than the rest of the world. All we are is people who are honest enough to say, I am absolutely stuffed and I'm screwed without the Lord. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, any screwed up people? Anyway. <laughs> so it's remarkable for that. Now, this story picks up Jesus returning home from a ministry trip. Um, you remember the last story we talked about is Jesus and the leper. And um, he heals the leper. He says, don't you go and tell anyone. So what does the leper do? goes and tells everyone. So Jesus is, can only stay in an outside city. So he's kind of almost banished out there so so that's kind of happening Luke 4 lets us know that 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 Jesus he went to his um, hometown Nazareth where he grew up he went to a synagogue and he started proclaiming um, the good news started preaching and teaching and as a result of Jesus teaching in a synagogue they wanted to literally throw him off a cliff okay (laughs) good start to ministry (laughs) who wants to be a minister they'll throw you off a cliff but now we actually see Jesus has returned home and um, he's in a house, which is po- possibly his own. We don't necessarily know. And um, he starts to teach. And we read from verse 3. As he is teaching, four men arrive carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. So the roofs in Palestine, they were like flat. And um, you could access them from outside, but, but, but what they were made of, they were made of like sticks and branches all kind of um, crossed over and, and hatched together. And, and then you would just um, cover it with thatch and then you put mud on it. And, and um, there were some houses where you could have your goats up there, you could grow grass up there. And um, so when they said they had to dig through the roof, they literally had to dig through. It was like digging through soil and, and gunk and all that actually to get through. Imagine if this was actually Jesus' house. <laughs> Imagine if you came to my place in Thornley. You're, like, you're digging through my roof. I don't know if I'd have the same response as Jesus. Just saying. All right? The very first thing that we read here is that Jesus saw their faith. Before we roll on to Jesus, I want to talk about their faith. Because that's very significant in a world that is becoming more detached, more isolated, and more secular. And yet, as Christians, we are supposed to live in this world. Yet, somehow, we... Instead of swimming upstream, we actually start swimming along with the rest of the world. But Jesus saw their faith. What's so significant? Seeing their faith, verse 5, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, other renderings say my son, your sins are forgiven. I think this is a beautiful picture of community right here. Because I've got to be honest. There are simply times where I do not have enough faith in and of myself and I need the faith of others just to get me to the feet of Jesus. Anyone else like that? I've got to be honest, as being a senior pastor, that happens a lot. (laughs) The thing that um, frightens me sometimes is that I come to that place um, almost like every week. Uh, In fact, I was with uh, my GP this week and she's a look at me and she said, how do you keep on going when your job is to continually pour out and you continually hear and, and all that? And um, that happens. And I cannot tell you the amount of times 
that I've gone through my life and I feel like I've come to the end of it. I feel like I have nothing else to pour. I feel like I have no faith. I feel like, oh, dear Lord. And, and, and I cannot tell you the amount of times that in those moments, out of nowhere, someone, a friend from inside of the church or outside of the church, they come and, and somehow we sit and we meet and we talk and they don't even know it. But I know it. But it's like they dug a hole and they lowered me before the feet of Jesus. They didn't even know it. Out of nowhere. It lets me know that there is this mysterious dance between us and the Holy Spirit. That at the right time, he brings people. At the right time, he meets our need. At the right time, when we feel that we've got nothing left, he will actually do something. But there is a secret. There is a secret which we are losing sight of as a church in the West. There is a secret, and the secret is this. You must be engrafted into community. I want you to remember that word engrafted. We talk about Jesus being the vine and all this, and yeah, 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 got to be in the vine, got to be in the vine. Hey, how many of you know that engraftment is the picture of the New Testament church? We are engrafted in to the remnant. Anyone do gardening know how hard it is to engraft? Engrafting does not happen automatically. That takes intention, doesn't it? But this is the picture. You have to be engrafted into community. You have to be. Now, here at Newsbury, there, is, there, are, there are literally thousands of beautiful churches in Perth. We are one of those beautiful churches, okay? And we are a beautiful church. We're a lovely church. I love this church. We are a faith family where everyone is welcome. But here's the catch. I cannot engraft you into this community. I can engraft myself, but I cannot engraft you. And for the most part, when I sit and we're talking and we're dealing with people who are going through crisis and all that, you know what? Stuff has hit the fan, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, we are not engrafted into the community. You may have attended, but attendance does not mean engrafting. You know what I'm saying? Engraftment's a whole different thing. Engraftment takes so much time. Isn't that annoying? It takes years to engraft into community. But I tell you what. Are those times when it really does suck and, and, and the times where those twists and turns come, you're really glad that you're engrafted in community because you have the strength of community and you actually have people who round you and you may not even have to say anything just by their presence being with you. They dug a hole through the roof and they lowered you before the presence of God and in the presence of God, you got your faith. Now, we live in a world right now that is promising ultimate freedom. You can do whatever you want. And you can do whatever you want, but if you do whatever you want, you will not be engrafted into anything. You know what I'm saying? Because if you want to be engrafted into something, that means you actually have to limit the freedoms that you think you have. It's true. Let me tell you. You know, we've got two connect groups that run Thursday and, and, and Tuesday. You know what? Because some young adults come. You know what? Young adults, you may feel like you have absolute freedom. You do. Imagine, do whatever you want. But if you want to be engrafted in community, you forego your freedoms and you come and you sit in my lounge room. That's engrafting, right? Meaning is another thing. We live in a world that has no meaning. 
We need meaning. You have to be engrafted into meaning. How do you get engrafted into meaning? You forego certain things and you come into places where you're going to hear the word of God, where you're going to be taught the word of God, and you actually say, I'm actually, I may be able to do that, but I'm going to plant myself here and I'm going to learn and I'm going to teach. I'm going to be engrafted into the story of God and suddenly I've got meaning in my life. And we live in a world where people don't have any meaning. And if you don't have any meaning, fast forward that, play the movie forward, it is obvious the conclusion. You know what I'm saying? That's what I mean when we actually have to go the opposite way. Is that right? Everyone's gone very quiet. Very quiet. I'm talking about something good. You've got to be engrafted in. Engrafted in. Around the people, oh, you know, I just don't feel connected. I just don't feel this. I just don't feel that. Guess what? That's actually on you. (laughs) I'm a very compassionate pastor. I am. Because I know the truth, that unless you engraft yourself, you will not have that. I was actually thinking, it's a long weekend. I should have actually started this series again next week when everyone's back. (laughs) But anyway, that's a really, really important thing, eh? Really, really important. And again, I can't tell you, God just somehow, he's, he's been so faithful in my life. Um, the times where I just feel like, there are times, believe it or not, where I think, man, they need to get another senior pastor because I'm done. And there are just moments when people just come and I sit and it's like, that's right, I'm filled up again because I come before the presence of God. So that's really important for us to know. Okay, so next thing, moving on to Jesus' identity. That was just about us. Let's talk about Jesus a bit. So we've already mentioned that John Mark, he uses his introduction to tell us who Jesus is again. If you missed the podcast, the, the podcast is called um, um, Wake Up Call, February 10. You can go back and listen to it. Or if you want to cheat, you can actually go back. I did a recap, um, first sentences, a recap last week on Facebook. You can listen to that in three minutes. You're going to get that entire sermon. Don't you wish I could just preach for three minutes? And No. So John Mark, he uses his introduction to tell us who this Jesus is. And now Jesus is going to tell us who he is. Verse 5, I want us to really pay attention to Jesus. And I really want us to try and imagine and actually picture us in this story, okay? This is what he says. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, my child. Other renderings say, my son. Pay attention to that. How often do we read over that? My child. My son. There are a lot of scriptures that are kind of in this vein. Hosea 11.1 1 is, is one of these, which says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. Pay attention. My son. My son. Is there any surprise that we're living in a world where that relationship between father and child is being attacked and being brought to ruin. Father is one of those names that's supposed to mean love. It's supposed to mean safety. It's supposed to mean mercy. It's supposed to mean strength. You know, I I firmly believe that if you're a person in this place and you have a little one or an older one and they call you father, you have a great responsibility. A great responsibility. And also a great privilege. A great privilege. If you're one here and um, obviously you'll be female, there's a great responsibility to protect that word father. 
in a world that is right now wanting to actually ravage and attack masculinity, that, that attack does not belong in the church. It does not. We, we champion and we lift up both men and women, mothers and fathers. But there is, a, there is a current which wants to actually attack that. But we as believers and followers of Jesus, we understand that if, if that name, Father, gets so discredited, it is going to be so much more difficult for people to actually see God and to experience God because He is our good, loving, heavenly Father. We all know it. We all know it. We may have had fathers who weren't that great. And how much harder is it? How much harder? I was just thinking this week, I was reminded this week, and um, between my relationship with my dad and my own kids, for some reason, I'm just sitting there. This happens all the time. You know, I'm just sitting there, I'm just hanging out, enjoying, just being with myself. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jackson comes in, crawls into my lap, and just thinks he can just go sit in my lap. He just does that. Just sits there, and it's not that. There are other times I'm just sitting around, and for some reason, I don't know if it's part of her personality, but Kayla thinks she can climb up on my shoulders whenever she thinks. And she climb up, and then she start playing my head like a drum. You know, she, she thinks she can do that for some reason. One thing I've noticed about Jackson and Kayla is that they actually really love it when I put my arms around them, and I, give, and I hold them firmly. And it's not a firmness that is wanting to hurt them. It's a firmness that lets them know that there is strength in their father's arms. They love that. They love that. So I'm thinking about my experience with my dad, which was nothing like that, and, and my children, and God starts saying, well, what about you and me? If you've been like a fallen evil dad, knowing to do that kind of stuff, how about you and me? And I'm like, I have no idea how I'm going to jump up in your, sh- in your shoulders and give you a tap on the head or anything like that. <laughs> but no, I said, Holy Spirit, if there's something I'm missing here, I want you to show me it. I want you to lead me in it. But Jesus starts off here. He starts off by saying, my son. My son. The first one that God calls son in scripture is Israel. Jesus is saying something significant here. And it's because of this relationship that there is mercy. It's because of this relationship there is compassion. It's because of this relationship there is grace. So my son... That seems to be pretty safe, but the conflict and the controversy starts after this. He says, seeing their faith, Jesus said to paralyzed son, uh, man, my son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law, were they're sitting, um, they thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin. So from his own mouth, Jesus is saying something about himself, and the teachers who were sitting there, they knew that Jesus was saying something about himself. If no one else just disregarded it, they knew, wait a minute, he is saying something about himself. On the basis of his own sovereignty, he is absolving this man of his sin. And rightly so, they were thinking to themselves, wait a minute, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sin. They were right. They were absolutely right. And in this moment, Jesus is putting every single person who's witnessing this in a situation, in a position. There is no middle ground. There's no way you can be indifferent. You have to make a decision right now, right here, of who I say I am. Am I a blasphemer 
Or am I that one, as was written through Isaiah, the one who can forgive sin? There was no middle ground. There was no middle ground. There was no middle ground. He is either the one who can forgive sin or he's not. And if he's not, he's a blasphemer. And according to the law, he must die. He must be killed. Whoa, could you imagine the tension? You know, could you imagine the tension? He's either God, or if he's not, man, we've got to kill this sucker now. And, and we've got the law to back us up. So verse 8, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So we asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Which is it easier to say? I mean, it's easier to say a whole lot of stuff, isn't it? I mean, I could stand up right here. I could say, you know what? I can actually slam dunk a, a basketball. You know, basketball. I can do that. I can say that. You know what? It's one thing to say, another thing to do it, right? If you ask me to do it, I get like a little kid one. <laughs> it's one thing to say, it's another thing to do. You can say a lot of stuff. And that's why he's saying, what's easier to say? To say your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise up, take your mat and actually have it happen? What's easier to say? Two questions. Along with this, who alone can forgive sin? Well, that's God. We saw two scriptures from Isaiah in the exile period. There are a whole lot of other scriptures starting from Exodus that actually talks about forgiveness of sins. And God is the one who forgives sins. And also, where is God, by the way? He's not on earth, is he? Not on earth. So interesting that Jesus goes on and says in verse 10, keep that in mind, who can forgive sin, but also where God is, not on earth. Keep those two things in mind as Jesus responds in verse 10. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sin. It's almost like Jesus... On purpose, everything on his own terms. Remember previously, he didn't allow the demons to tell the world who he was. He's now telling them everything's on his own terms. And he puts everyone in a position, you're going to have to choose. And after he puts everyone in a position, I have to choose, it's like he actually tightens the drill even deeper. So I'm going to prove that the Son of Man has the authority on earth. Whoa. Man, I reckon in heaven I'm going to ask the Lord, is there some way you could just sort of transport us into those? I just want to feel the tension. I want to feel, I want to look at people's faces. If this man gets up, Jesus is not a blasphemer. He is God. And you've got to remember, the crowd is spilling out onto the streets. So he says, verse 11, stand up, pick up your mat and go home. And the man jumped up grabbed his mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Now notice this healing here. Notice something that's very, very important. Jesus does not pray. Jesus does not evoke any name. It is completely and solely based on his own authority that he heals and validates his ability to forgive sin. My child, your sins are forgiven, Jesus says. In the book of Isaiah, Yahweh says, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. See, Jesus on his own terms, out of his own mouth, he is actually declaring and revealing something about his identity. And because he is saying something of his identity, he puts each and every person in this room, each and every person 
back there 2,000 plus years ago in a position where we now have to make a decision. Who do we say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? And the answer to that question changes absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. If you think about it, this little story is this tiny version of the whole gospel as well. So Jesus, he's there, he's teaching and healing. Jesus is condemned for blasphemy. Jesus is vindicated. The paralyzed man gets healed and his healing points forward to a new life that Jesus himself will have in the resurrection and will share with everyone. See, Jesus is really forcing some issues. Who do you say I am? Mark's gospel begins with John Mark, the author, making a declaration of who he believes Jesus to be. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the same Yahweh of Isaiah. He is the same Yahweh of Malachi 3. Jesus is Yahweh. John the Baptist comes, just like what Malachi says, I'm sending my messenger, I'm sending John the Baptist, and after my messenger, I'm coming. I'm going to come to my temple suddenly. Fast forward 400 years, we see John the Baptist, the messenger, and the very next thing we see, Jesus coming. Jesus is Yahweh, according to John Mark. And now, out of the mouth of Jesus himself, we have his identity revealed to us. He is declaring boldly, emphatically, unapologetically, I am the one who has authority on earth to forgive sins. I am the same one who will blot out your sins. I'm the one who will cause it like mist to disappear. I am Yahweh. And in light of that, we're kind of stuck. Because John Mark's now looking at you and looking at me. And he's saying, this is who I believe him to be. And this is who Jesus said he was. Who do you believe him to be? Yeah. What a great apologetic. Can you see how that just lines up? Amazing. It is impossible to encounter the real Jesus and be indifferent. You either bow down in wonder or you go away offended. Two options. But you can't be indifferent. But I understand indifference does creep in. Creeps into my life. And in those moments, I need to be reminded once again of who Jesus is. And when I'm caught in that position where I need to once again make my own declaration. Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you are Yahweh. You are God. And I'm following you. Even if it means following you into confrontation. Even if it means following you into conflict. Even if it means following you to the cross. I'm following you. It's an amazing thing. Just going to close with this. In our um, last Connect group, um, we did session six of the Bible course, which ended with a brilliant quote from C.S. Lewis. And the quote simply said this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if it's true, of infinite importance, the only thing it cannot be is moderately important. That's the challenge I'm placing in the church and on myself as a senior pastor of this particular local church. If this is true, if from our mouth we declare Jesus to be Yahweh, Jesus to be God, 
That's why I wanted to have a chat with those Jehovah's Witnesses again. But they didn't come back after the last time I talked to them, you see. That means our faith is of infinite importance. This is not moderately important. And if in areas of our life we have actually ventured and stepped back and there is a moderate importance of Christianity on our life, we hear the beautiful voice of the Holy Spirit. My child, what a beautiful relationship. My son, my daughter. And maybe this morning, that moderate importance, that dial can be turned up. This is significant. This is infinite. We are called into this great narrative, invited into the family of Almighty God. Amen. Let me pray for you.